city heart be flutter with stuttering sounds. Gutter music for silver lining clouds tumbling down. Town we breathe in memory. Welcome to Working Class Heroes Radio, everyone. My name is Mel Gonzalez, and I'll be one of your hosts tonight. And my name is Khadija Metter, your other host for tonight. So thanks for joining us. Today we'll be speaking with postal service worker Frank Couget about the attack on the United States Postal Service throughout the Trump administration, how postal workers have responded, and what the system could be like under a new administration. We'll also be discussing what President Biden has been up to already during his first week and what he's got planned for his first 100 days in office. We also want to hear from you listeners about what you'd like to see during the first months of the new presidency. So in a few minutes, give us a call at 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. We'll start the show with headlines from this week. But first, we want to recognize that the show is made here in New York City on land that was stolen from and still rightfully belongs to the Lenape people. We stand in solidarity with all indigenous peoples in their struggles for liberation, and we call on our listeners to do so as well. Now, onto our roundup of headlines for this week. In his first three days in office, President Biden has signed about 30 executive actions thus far to address various issues, from the coronavirus pandemic and labor to environmental issues and immigration policy. His focus has been primarily to establish a centralized pandemic response plan and to reverse some of the most controversial policy changes that Trump implemented in his four years in office. In response to the pandemic, Biden enacted the Defense Production Act to accelerate production of testing and vaccination supplies, established a testing board to increase testing capacity, and has directed FEMA to establish community vaccination centers. In environmental issues, President Biden has moved to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, which Trump's administration withdrew from in June of 2017, citing that the environmental policies championed in the accords would undermine the U.S. economy. Biden also ended the Keystone XL oil pipeline, a fracking project that indigenous and environmental activists fiercely resisted through an occupation of the construction site in 2015. Obama eventually rejected the permit needed to continue construction in 2017, but Trump later cleared the project for construction. In terms of immigration policy, Biden moved to reverse several policies that Trump enacted to target and marginalize immigrant communities. For example, he rescinded the Muslim ban that restricted travel to the U.S. from seven different countries with predominantly Muslim populations, including Libya, Syria, and Somalia, among others. Biden also moved to restore DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program that provided temporary legal status to over 700,000 undocumented immigrants. He also included clauses to protect the program from being dismantled by future presidents. Biden also placed a moratorium on internal ICE enforcement policies that Trump enacted to expand detention, defunded the border wall construction, and halted some deportations for the next 100 days. In a separate move, he introduced a bipartisan and conditional immigrant reform bill to Congress with an eight-year path to citizenship. Although immigrant organizations welcome the temporary halting of immigration enforcement, they fear this is only a temporary pause that does not restrict or move to dismantle private ICE detention or the criminal justice system that they say has led to the deportation of over three million people under Obama and Biden's administration and later under Trump. 
Activists with Cosecha carried out banner drops across 30 cities, calling on President Biden to abolish ICE and implement permanent unconditional protections for all 11 million undocumented immigrants. In other immigration news, on Monday, January 18th, Honduran migrants and asylum seekers in a caravan bound to the United States and Mexico were violently beaten and forced off the highway on the border between Honduras and Guatemala by Guatemalan police and military. For almost an entire week, 1,400 Hunts Point food market workers went on strike for the first time in 35 years after management rejected the demand of a raise of a dollar per hour, offering only 32 cents per hour. The strike, which ended just this morning, resulted in the largest raise in the history of their bargaining unit, 70 cents per hour rising to $1.85 over three years, two extra sick days and no concessions. Workers at Hunts Point Food Market, through which up to 60% of the city's produce passes are rightfully considered essential workers and heroes during this pandemic. Six workers have died thus far and hundreds of others have gotten sick with COVID. Yet after deciding to strike, they were met with intimidation by the NYPD. This past Tuesday, over 300 NYPD officers in riot gear broke the picket line and made arrests. However, there was also great solidarity shown by workers in community, with people bringing food, blankets, gloves, hats, and joining the picket line. Last night, working class heroes visited the picket line. Here's a clip from an interview with William Brown, a Hunts Point food market warehouse worker for 21 years. Personally, just knowing that it's like we're being disrespected in this manner. We're out here in the cold fighting for a dollar. We're not here to get rich. It's something fair. That's all we ask for. That's all we ask for. They know that, but it doesn't matter to them. They feel you're going to work for what we pay you, and that's it. That's how they feel. And you, you have to stand up. If you don't stand up to them, they're going to walk over you every time. And like like my union, union brother said, to, it feels good to just get up and, and, and punch the bully, the bully in the face. The rail cars that come through here, some of them actually didn't know that we were on strike. But once some of the brothers let them know we're on strike, he said, oh, okay, no problem. Took real cars all the way back. First they go back to the yard, and then they go back to where they came from. And that hurt the owners. That, that hurts them big. Here at Working Class Heroes Radio, we want to congratulate the Hunts Point food workers on their win today. And finally, many of our listeners may remember hearing our two-part series on Prakash Churaman, a young man who was imprisoned at Rikers Island when he was just 15 years old. In our two-part series, we covered the charges against him and his fight to prove his innocence. He is now free and home after six years of imprisonment without a fair trial. We'll continue covering the story, but for more updates and to get involved, you can follow at Free Prakash Alliance on Instagram. Welcome home, Prakash. So that's it for headlines this week. We'll be back after this music break to talk about the start of the Biden presidency. And we'll also be opening up our lines to hear what you'd like to see during the next few months. Give us a call at 212-209-2877. Thanks, y'all. Se le 
queda pa' que suba y aunque no suba verde. Que suba y aunque no suba de ley, se le da pa' que suba y aunque no suba de ley. Hace lo que quiere. Eso tambore, vendale no te quede, ven saca tu colores, aunque no suba de ley. Welcome back, listeners. That was Paqui Suba by Richie Oriach. As we discussed during the headlines, the new Biden administration has already begun to make moves on his agenda for the first 100 days of his presidency. For our discussion today, we'd like to dive into some specific facets of his agenda talk a little bit about things we're concerned with, and hear from you all on what you would like to see the new administration do in the upcoming months to help support working people. And we do want to hear from you. Give us a call at 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. So Mel, what do you think of the Biden agenda thus far? What is missing? Well, you know, I think a lot of people are super excited about what uh, what Biden has already been able to do with immigration, reversing a lot of the terrible policies um, that Trump put in place and, and exacerbated. Um, you know, I know one of the things that people are really excited about is is that he's ended um, the Migrant Protection Protocols Program, um, which has led to about 60,000 asylum applicants um, to be returned to Mexico while people wait for their for their asylum hearings, um, leading to all kinds of different abuses across cities along the border. And, you know, I think, I think people are, are rightly still concerned that Biden isn't going far enough. Um, you know, I know one of the things that people have been really concerned about are these asylum cooperative agreements, where um, basically there are agreements with countries like Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador that allows the U.S. to to basically transfer asylum applicants who have made it to the to the U.S.-Mexico border back to one of those countries um, so that basically telling them, you know, you should apply for asylum there before you apply um, to, asyl- to asylum in the U.S. And unfortunately, that's just endangering people's lives, um, leading to, you know, increased dangers of, of gang violence or persecution due to political beliefs or sexual orientation in some of these countries, you know, essentially the same kinds of situations they were facing in their home country and made even worse because they are now in in these other countries without a job, without uh, access to community um, and and stuff like that. Um, Gio, I think we have one, one caller. Is that right? 
Yes, we do. Ready to take that call? Sure, yeah. All right, caller, you are on the air. Please tell us your name and where you are calling from. My name is Sandra, and I'm from Ringwood, New Jersey. And my Biden spoke at my daughter's graduation 40 years ago, and my daughter called me and begged me to vote for him. I had my concerns. I'm with for a third party. However, two things that really I want him to support the post office. I love the post office. But the other one is how dare he think of invading Venezuela when we fought for him because he was the duly elected president. And the duly elected president in, in, in um, on the radio, it's on the radio, the duly elected president in, in Venezuela is Maduro, and he wants to overthrow him and put in this guy, Guido, who pulled down his pants so, so he can get oil. And I say do not dare do that. That is so hypocritical beyond beyond. Thank you so much for calling in. Yeah, what's crazy is, I, you know, I was going to mention the same thing. It's kind of wild how um, uh, Biden has decided to recognize Juan Guaido of Venezuela, this coup leader, um, and, and just the, the sheer irony while he is saved um, from this attempted, you know, rising from the right to deny him the election that he was, you know, that he got democratically. So, yeah, I agree 100% and we appreciate your input. Yeah, Khadija, you know, one, I know that Biden has already mentioned that he's going to continue these economic sanctions um, in Venezuela, which, you know, I saw a recent study saying that I think between 2017 and 2018, uh, it's led to the death of as many as 40,000 Venezuelans. So you know, I feel like it's a continuation of these of these Trump policies with respect to imperialism and our 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 participation in, in, in other countries. Um, Khadija, what do you have any other thoughts on, you know, these immigration policies that that Biden is is has been, you know, has been working on uh, this past week? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Well, so these positive steps that were just mentioned that Biden has taken or plans to take um, within the first 100 days, um, like with regard to the deportation moratorium, for example, I think it's important to point out that these agenda items have only taken place and were signed because of tireless organizing efforts from grassroots organizers, experts, activists on the ground, um, not just during the Trump administration but even from before in the Obama administration, because that, of course, Biden was a part of, because as we know, um, Obama and Biden deported more people than anyone before him. And so I think we need to give credit where credit is due to activists on the ground whose names we may never know. Um, but yeah, and it's also due to that same pressure on the ground pressure, um, which is why the Muslim ban, as you mentioned earlier, the Muslim and African ban, because many um, mainly African countries have been affected. Um, ha has been repealed as well. And we should also add um, that, you know, it's still light, here, light years away from what the people want. We know that a popularly held belief in this country is that ICE needs to be held accountable and is currently too powerful, um, as we've seen, and that these detention centers are not necessary. But, um, you know, many agree that immigrants should be given a pathway to citizenship, but might disagree on how to get there. Definitely. I think that's, you know, that's something that people um, are, are really worried about that, you know, despite this deportation moratorium for 100 days, people can still 
um, get snatched up and and deported um, under these expedited removal laws that still exist on the books. Um, you know, I feel like you know there's other loopholes too for for the deportation moratorium that people aren't talking enough about. How folks with aggravated felony charges can still um, can still be deported, even if you know those charges are are really things that we we don't consider to be felonies that are actually misdemeanors under under normal state laws. And you know, pe- this fear of people getting snatched up is 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 real. We know that this is happening even right now. It's actually something that we wanted to turn to right now. Um, we, you know, we heard that recently this past weekend, um, a 27-year-old man from Honduras, Javier Castillo Maradiaga, who has lived in the Bronx since he was a child and was a DACA recipient since 2012, was arrested for, for jaywalking um, on the night of December 14th. Javier was kept in jail under trumped-up charges that did not allow him to renew his DACA. And what, he was held in Orange County for 13 months before now being transferred over to LaSalle Correctional Facility in Louisiana, where, um, you know, he's being threatened with deportation despite, you know, despite this 100, 100 day deportation moratorium that, that folks are, are super excited about. So we actually wanted to turn, um, to Javier's sister, Dariela, who's, who's on the line to kind of tell us a little bit more about how these fears are still real. Um, and that we have, you know, a lot more to be, um, to be worried about and to be fighting for. She was Dariela on the line. Hi. Um, hey. Hi, Dariela. Welcome to our show. Um, thank you so much for, for calling in. Um, I know this is a, this is all happening right now and is a very heavy topic of, um, regarding your, your brother, what's happening, but can you share a little bit with us what happened um, on the night of December 14th? Well, um, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, well, Javier was uh, sadly stopped and freed. That's what it was. He was arrested and uh, given a summons for jaywalking. I mean, jaywalking is a very right for any New Yorker. So then... They uh, press felony charges, and with those, you can't renew DACA. So, but for the lack of merit, they were never presented to a grand jury. Then suddenly, they were dismissed and sealed by the DA, uh, Mrs. Clark. But only after she forced him to accept to leave the country, that was the condition to drop the charges. Javier was denied his constitutional right to a quick and public trial. And then the judicial system, in the one that we trust, fell him again because the DA decided to personally contact and press the ICE officer in charge of Javier's case to rush his deportation before the start of the new president. So everything happened so fast in the last uh, couple of weeks just because they wanted to get him out of the country before Joe Biden took the oath. Yeah, that's that's absolutely egregious. Just the way ICE has been, exactly like you said, just just trying to time it perfectly, just to target your brother. Um, but yeah, can can I ask, um, you know, how how do you make sense of all of this? Well, you know, I don't really make sense. But after President Biden signed the moratorium to stop the Dreamer and the TPS holder deportation, we have. Uh, 
learned that ICE is a rogue agency, and they are being enabled by many in our judicial system. We saw the moratorium, like we dreamers saw the moratorium as a safety blanket, but that's not the truth. The truth is that it has too many loopholes, and ICE is using them to raise the deportation of many detained before they can apply or renew their TPS or DACA status. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we we have a lot of listeners listening in, and I just want to take this moment to ask, how can our listeners help your family? What can they do to stop Javier's deportation? Because we know it's happening very, you know, they're, they're trying to schedule it for Monday um, at, at 2 a.m. Just uh, what, what, what are you asking for people who want to support you? Well, first of all, I want to say that the biggest help will come by protecting our communities, by denouncing all the illegal acts committed by these rogue NYPD members. NYPD has become the biggest enabler of ICE, and they are targeting and breaking off our communities by arresting us using illegal ta- tactics and stop us free. They are filling up all these private sector detention facilities. NYPD has become the umbilical core of ICE. It is unacceptable that beside their day job of protecting the wealthy, of course, because they don't protect us anymore, NYPD officers are taking side jobs as the feeding tube of ICE detention centers. Even as we try to survive this pandemic, they don't care. We live in a sanctuary city, and every day many of our friends and families, because it's not just my family, they're being processed by ICE. We need to stand as a united front. We need to give a fight for everyone to have the right to live and work without the fear of racial targeting in this uh, city. Then you can also help us by calling your local Congress members, denouncing this tactic to the local ICE office of policy via phone call, and also attending any of the two rallies that we have programmed for tomorrow, January 24th. Now, the first one will take place in New York City at Foley Square, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. This rally will be organized, well, it's being organized by UN Local. And the second rally will be in Washington, D.C. This one will take place in front of the White House at the Black Lives Matter Plaza at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. This rally will be organized by South Asian Solidarity Collective. Please follow them on social media, share our posts, and please speak up. Speak up. I never thought this would happen to us. It is happening. It's hard. And to whoever decides to go with us, to be with us, and to fight with us, please wear masks. Remember, we're fighting, but we're still in the middle of a pandemic. And, guys, thank you for letting me speak. Of course, Dariela, thank you for coming on and sharing this difficult, uh, this difficult situation going on for your brother and you and the rest of your family. Um, you heard it, everyone. Um, there's ways to support Javier to keep fighting for, for our folks um, and to show up. Just to just want to kind of repeat what Dariela mentioned. Um, tomorrow, there's going to be um, a rally at Foley Square at 11 a.m. to support the family. Um, and there, there's also going to be one in front of the White House um, at 3 p.m. Eastern Time at the BLM Plaza. 
organized by the South Asian Solidarity Collective. So thank you, Dariela. We stand with you. We're fighting here with you. Um, and we wish you and your family the, the best. Um, we'll keep covering this issue moving forward. Thank you, Dariela. Thank you so much. Well, I think, you know, we don't have any more time for, for any other callers, um, but thank you all for calling in. Um, please stay tuned after this music break. We're going to come back and Julian's going to be speaking with our featured guest, Frank Couget. Um, they'll also be taking some calls. Um, so feel free to keep calling. Um, give us a call at 212-209-2877. Again, that's 212-209-2877. Stay tuned, y'all. That was Puro Veneno by Nafi Peluso. You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM and also streaming on WBAI.org. My name is Julian Guerrero. Happy to be here with you all. Remember, our phone lines are open for you to call. The number is 212-209-2877. So for tonight's featured interview, we're speaking with Frank Couget, a lifelong New Yorker and longtime city letter carrier and member of the AFL-CIO's National Association of Letter Carriers. Frank, welcome to Working Class Heroes. Thanks. It's, um, I'm grateful to be here. I'm a, you guys do great work. Thank you. Super glad to have you. So why don't we just get into it? So why don't you uh, tell me, how did you end up becoming a letter carrier and how do you like the job? Um, I basically, I, I grew up in Queens. I come from a family of go uh, government workers, transit, board of ed, sanitation. And so when um, I was young and uh, working minimum wage jobs, I took every city test I could. Um, and uh, the post office was the first one that, that called. And um, the job is, is hard. It's very hard on the body. The pension um, is not so good. Um, but uh, for a kid with a high school diploma um, walking in the door to have a secure union job with benefits and, and rights. Uh, it was, uh, it was really a godsend and it changed my life. Yeah. Having a union job is certainly a very rare thing. And I wish, I wish many more New Yorkers had them and really as many working people did as well. 
you know, we live in a country that loves to demean public servants like teachers and others. And sorry for the background noise, y'all. Um, but I really can't think of any public agency that has been as vilified and mocked for being outdated and even useless as the U.S. Postal Service. Why do you think this is? And, and can you talk about why the USPS is, in fact, a, a vital public service? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do understand that um, given like the experience of people, I mean, I've had the situation where um, I'm delivering junk mail, um, you know, which is uh, basically a, a subsidy to advertisers um, where, you know, people throw it out in front of me. And I understand that there's a, a generational divide as far as experiencing the, you know, the like, you know, between younger people and older people as far as the mail is concerned. Um, but I think the, you know, especially this past November, um, it, it kind of became clear just how important it is to have, um, you know, the, the Postal Service is the only infrastructure um, that the, uh, the government, the federal government has that stays in contact with every single resident, um, regardless of status, every, you know, six days a week. Um, and it's done it, like, you know, for, you know, if it's older than the country. Um, in a crisis like we face now, I mean, it's, you could, like, it's invaluable um, to have that kind of a resource um, where, um, you know, basically the, I think something like over 60 million ballots were cast through the, through the U.S. mail. Um, so we delivered democracy um, despite, um, you know, facing sabotage from, from above and despite, like, you know, uh, facing a, a pandemic. Um, and uh, I think that, like, you know, the, the other hidden thing that maybe, you know, younger people or city folk don't see is just that how important the mail is, especially for um, seniors, um, for rural people, where it's, it's really a lifeline. I think like the Postal Service delivers medi medication to over uh, 300,000 veterans alone. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think that the at least my experience on the route where I work in Midtown Manhattan, I'm a more of a, and I think that this goes for carriers, especially um, like across the country um, or across the system, is that I'm more of a, a part of that community on my route than I am where I live because uh, like I spend more time there and I know everybody and I've seen babies like, you know, grow up and go to school on the bus and, uh, you know, I've, del I've delivered cremated remains. And so, um, you know, carriers, all across the country uh, actually like save lives um, every year um, by the hundreds because we know when something is wrong. We know when that mailbox pulls up. We know, you know, when we're supposed to, who we're supposed to see and when we're supposed to see them. Um, and there's just, uh, you know, there's a social, there's a, a, an, an, um, a social good to that that uh, I don't think can be measured in, in terms of uh, profitability. Um, it's a service and it's a common good. Um, and, uh, you know, we delivered democracy um, for people this year. And, you know, when we were attacked this August by the Postmaster General um, and, his, and his cronies, you know, over, there were over a thousand protests um, in August um, like in response to the mail delays and these attacks all across the country. I think it was organized by Move On. And so, you know, uh, they, you know, democracy delivers for us. Absolutely. It's like a, the post office is like an infrastructure that reaches every every life here in this country. And and just to what you're saying, I mean, just having like a someone who walks the beat, you know, because it's sort of typically said that it's the police who walk the beat and they're the ones out there. But honestly, if 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 you guys have that much more of a connection to 
to working people or to the communities that you're in, I mean, perhaps we should just expand the postal service and, and defund the police. If I think those are complementary to each other. Um, you know, I'm curious, what, can you talk about what roles our local post office could be playing in our lives if we wanted to, be, you know, think big about this, about what the postal service can offer us? Um, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And I mean, just to say, like, listening to the sister before and, and just the, the cruel and, and disgusting treatment, um, you know, and all the resources and billions of dollars that go to, to forces like like police and, and ICE. Um, and at the same time, you know, you have you have a, a like a, a postal system um, that is um, popular and competent and um, important um, being attacked. Um, it I think it just goes to to show you know like that there are you know it's it's never a matter of like there there not being enough resources. And so to answer your question though, um, the the resources like. The post office faces a crisis right now where it has not used tax money. It like for you know for I think the last at least since 1970 since it was reorganized. Um, it needs to I think survive at this point um, by expanding services. Every other country in the world, it's normal for there to be a postal banking system. Um, there was a postal banking system after um, the banking crisis early in the 20th century that we had up until 1960. Um, the banks did not like that, so they, they took it away. But there are millions of people in this country who are unbanked and underbanked, and it's a hundred million. It's a I, I don't know, it's a huge um, part of of uh, I, I think it's a hundred million dollar industry at least as far as like predatory loans and payday loans and check cashing places. So the post office can provide that because part of that infrastructure is that no matter where you are, um, and, and and when I say the country, I, I mean, I'm also including Puerto Rico. I'm also including, you know, all the, the you know, colonial possessions and, and you know, across the, you know, the, the, the empire, um, no matter where you are, you know, that, that the, the postal service goes there. Um, and so, like, that means that that's, we have a unique opportunity to utilize uh, the Postal Service in this moment of crisis to provide services like banking. Like, where I, I know, for instance, that, like, there are tons, like, immigrants come into my station all the time because they want to use, because they're, they're sending mon money order, they want money orders to send remittances back home, and they don't want to be fleeced by the, the exchange, uh, the money exchange rates and stuff like that. It's, it's the best available option. Um, every town that has a post office, no matter where you are, you could like the postal service could provide broadband internet access, which, as we could see, like should be a public utility because it is a modern need for most people. And like you know, maybe you know, folks in cities don't kind of you know um, understand there you know there are millions of people without internet access. Um, you know, it, you know, and and the postal service like as far as me not only being a us not only being delivery and transport workers, but we're communications workers. That's like really the was the original mandate, you know, to bind the country together. And the postal service really um, historically has been um, like a like prime the pump for for capital, um, you know, during the westward expansion and conquering of the continent, especially. But it's really been the the government subsidy and the force behind every single. Um, infrastructure advancement, whether it was draining swamps and building roads during colonial times, or building the railroads, or uh, establishing the first commercial uh, air fleet for for cargo, you know that was all the postal service. 
Um, and now, you know, we, you know, we, we have an opportunity, I think, amidst this crisis to fight for a postal service that provides postal banking, that provides internet access, that, um, like, given it the postal service's scale could be like, it should definitely, I think, would need to be a part of a green, green new deal because, you know, what other democratically, um, accountable, uh, you know, uh, agency um, do we have that that could prime the pump for a huge green vehicle fleet, an electric vehicle fleet, and all the you know electric charging apparatus that goes with that, including the like tens of thousands. I think there's something like over thirty thousand postal uh, post offices around. These could all be green buildings, and you know, even in terms of of, of um, capital. Um, you know, that, that that could really prime the pump towards getting um, green technologies to scale, um, you know, down like the price cheap enough because the, the scale of the postal service, like their purchasing power could really, uh, you know, like, like easily impact that and, and create those markets um, where, you know, I, I think that it's, you know, like given the market, you know, given um, investment, like no, like, you know, a private company never would, but the postal service can do all that. That's incredible. That's, I mean, yeah, it's just like pumping so much, so much thought into like what can go into, into these, this infrastructure and what, what services can really be given to, to working people. I believe we have a caller on the line. I want to go to our caller right now, see, uh, you know, what you think about the postal office. So caller, welcome to Working Class Heroes. If you can give me your name and where you're calling from. Thanks. It's Russell up in White Plains, and I sure would love to have a bank at the post office. It would save me a lot of trouble. But the first caller seemed to be sort of surprised about Biden and supporting Guaido, the usurper. And she didn't like Trump, obviously. And I thought Trump was a horror show, but I think Biden's going to be a lot worse. And I have just a couple of quick questions that are yes and no. Either one of you, uh, Mel or Khadijah or your guests can answer. The first question is, at the January 6th event, were there any Bernie supporters among those people when they shut it down? And number two is, under the Biden unity policy, and we should come together, the executive order that says people born biologically male can compete against girls for scholarships. Do you think that's fair? Yes or no? And the third one, real quick. Um, I, okay, I think we're going to have to wrap this up over here. Thank you for uh, some questions that are just straight up odd. And I think uh, are not really the kind of questions that we want to be taking. Um, uh, sorry, I don't know, Frank, if you want to respond to any of that or, or what you think. Um, I, I apologize. I, I couldn't actually even follow, like, follow the, I didn't really understand the, the question. I, That's probably a good thing. Actually, you know what, what we're going to do actually is take a, a quick musical break. And when we come back, hopefully we'll have some more callers. Again, that line is 212 
was Demolition by Los Psychos. You're tuned in to Working Class Heroes Radio right here on WBAI 99.5 FM, also streaming on WBAI.org. We are here with Frank Couget, a New York City letter carrier who's talking to us about the struggles of postal workers and the positive contributions the Postal Service can offer us. We have a few more questions for Frank, and we also want to hear from our listeners. So again, you can give us a call at 212 212- Two zero nine two eight seven seven. If you have a question for Frank or thoughts about the uh, postal service, so Frank, let's go to another question. Um, during the presidential election last fall, the Postmaster General Louis DeJoy infamously tried to reduce the capacity of USPS, presumably to weaken the ability of people to vote for uh, vote by mail. Uh, for many Americans, it was shocking to learn about a government leader trying to sabotage his own agency. But actually, this was really the latest chapter in a decades-long campaign to weaken the Postal Service. Um, can you explain for our listeners what these efforts have looked like and, and why our government would want to weaken its own Postal Service? Uh, yeah, certainly. I, I mean, I think that, you know, the the large-scale picture is, you know, is is like you know, I don't know if, if people like have heard the term neoliberalism, you know, it's basically, you know, a, a, a school of thought that's dominant, especially in this country, where, you know, the, the, the ruling class, capitalist class, they basically see the state as a, a, like an arm to, you know, optimize markets and profitability, and that's it. And given, I think, the crisis um, um, in, in, in capital, where you have so many companies sitting on mountains of cash, there's really not very many uh, places to invest profitably in. So that's where you see the attack on the public sector, because it's, it's the low hanging fruit. You see it like with the, you know, charter schools or, you know, military contracts or private prisons. The postal service is a tantalizing prey for these kinds of um, hunters because it's, it's centuries. Of, of public wealth that's been invested in real estate, in infrastructure, um, that's like sitting there, um, you know, to be grabbed by, you know, by, by FedEx and parceled up, um, you know, and, and, and like other like private logistics firms. Um, so, I mean, that's who the postmaster general is, Louis DeJoy, um, Trump's appoint, uh, appointee, um, he, and, and the, the all Mnuchin, um, board of governors. Um, like, you know, so, so like the fix was in where it's like, these guys are there um, to erode, con- you know, that if they can't hammer um, the post office, um, you know, like in- into pieces um, to at least erode confidence and sabotage it. And this like is not a new thing. Like, like, you know, you know th- like this struggle that we've been involved in has been going on for over a decade now. It starts with a uh, law passed in 2006 um, where they required the Postal Service to pay all of retiree benefits, healthcare benefits, and pension benefits 
for the next 50 years. So that meant people who were not even employed by the Postal Service, you know, at the time, um, and that they had to pay 50 years worth of that within within 10 years, um, which was in, no other company does, no other agency does. It's an, it was an impossible task. And then the financial um, crisis happened, the banking collapse happened um, like two years later and, and the volume plummeted. So then we faced um, an era of kind of just benign neglect um, where even President Obama's administration, you know, even though he, you know, he didn't make um, any moves to, you know, to deliver any hammer blows, he did um, present several, like, I think like several of his budgets were about um, privatization and cutting costs, which, you know, um, was in line with, uh, you know, his administration's response to the banking crisis and handing out, you know, trillions of dollars out of the, the special window at the Federal Reserve. Biden is, is like, comes from the same, um, he's cut from the same cloth. He comes from Delaware, which is a state owned by, you know, the credit card companies and DuPont. You know, and he's made an entire career. And so it's like they do not want to compete with postal banking. You know, that, that's like, you know, they do not want um, underbanked and un, unbanked people to have like, you know, accessible, um, you know, like, you know, uh, checking accounts and, and such. Um, and as far as um, Internet, you know, and broadband services. Uh, you know, the, 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 you know, Comcast, I think is, is a huge uh, donor of, of the Democrats generally and Biden specifically. They, you know, these are monopolists who do not want to compete with uh, 30,000, uh, you know, like free universally available public utility guaranteed as a right for everyone. Um, you know, post offices, you know, um, providing that, that broadband. And I would say like probably, you know, the most important thing is that we're unionized. We're um, 40% like the, the postal like employees, the craft employees. It's the, the largest like mass unionized federal workforce. And so it's like if you want to deliver a blow to the labor movement, you know, you you would bust us. I mean, that's like, you know, we probably we're the public sector version of the of what the UAW used to be. Um, and so I think, you know, it's like, it's like, yeah, it's, it's 40% women employees. I think it's something like 20% black employees. Um, it's, it's a mass, um, employer of, of hundreds of thousands of people, including, um, I think, you know, something like, I think, uh, like, I, I don't know, it's 20% veterans and, and lots of immigrants and people of color, which is historically, um, what it, what has been a, um, an upward, a, a source of upward mobility, even through like the Jim Crow um, period, where it was the, a, a better, you know, it was a lesser evil. It was, you know, you took a test. It was, it was a, there was a possibility for advancement um, through um, work at the post office um, for for people of color and, and oppressed groups. And this is a nightmare um, for for you know for the, these kind of white supremacists, neoliberals. You know, and and to attack us and 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 destroy us would you know would that you know that they've been you know they've been dreaming about this since Nixon. Yeah, and and I hope they keep dreaming. Um, so I believe right. we have a few callers on the line. I want to welcome our next caller. Um, caller, uh, welcome to Working Class Heroes. Can you give us your name and where you're calling from? Hello. Hi, we can hear you. Yeah. Um... I don't like. Um, I don't like. My, I don't like to know that the employees who work for the post office pay Social Security, uh, Social Security, and federal taxes. And I find out that they didn't. 
Okay. Yes, so I, go ahead, Frank. Sorry. Just to repeat the question oh, sure. for our listeners, it's um, if uh, postal workers pay federal taxes or Social Security taxes. Can, can you speak to that, Frank? Yes. Uh, yes, we do. Um, the, the, I think what the gentleman is probably thinking about is that under the civil service system, it was, it was a, you know, which I think ended in the 1980s. Um, that's when there was a changeover. And so I think it was true that um, there was a different setup. I, people stayed, paid in federal income tax, but I think they they did not pay into Social Security, but that was made up in, in some other kind of, of way. Uh, I forgot as far as like their, their pension went because they, they didn't receive um, those kinds of benefits. I'm not, you know, I remember old timers. Uh, talking about it. Um, but my basic understanding is that um, compared to what we have, which is, you know, along the lines of like the thrift savings program and, and a 401k, you know, it like depends on what the market's doing when you retire. I knew people back in 2008 who like were on the, you know, had one foot out the door and, you know, the, the next day came and, and like they had to work for another three years because, you know, they just lost like 30 grand. Um, out of the, out of what they're depending on for their pension. So if you ask me, I, I you know, I would I would love for there to be have been a part of the civil service. It's part of the um, attacks over the last thirty years. Thanks for that, Frank. Um, I believe we have another caller. I want to hear uh, what you have to say, caller. Uh, welcome to Working Class Heroes. Uh, can you give us your name and where you're calling from? Hello. Hey, we can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, we hear you, caller. Please mm -hmm. uh, go okay. ahead. Okay, my name is Ray. I'm calling from Elmont, Long Island, and I'm a letter carrier. And I just want to, I don't want to take up a lot of time. I just want to make one slight disagreement. I think people have realized how important we are since the state got shut down. And we were one of the few people out there. And we also right. give people directions. GPS isn't what it's cracked up to be. I've had people ask me how to get someplace, and they're a block away. And uh, I don't know if your guest got into this, but we have to pay retirement benefits, I think, 70 years ahead of time. So we're paying for workers that haven't been born yet, whose parents haven't been born yet. That has a lot to do with the deficit. Got it. Thank you for that. Frank, what, do you, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, the, 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 brother, the brother is right. Uh, um, and it's, it's a manufactured crisis. Um, and, you know, it, it basically, um, it's part of the, I think, you know, one of the demands as far as the solution goes is that, um, all that money is sitting in the treasury, right? All that, you know, pre, pre-retiree pension stuff. So one of the demands is just to return that money to, to refund the pre-fund, um, which is an easy thing to do. But the thing is, I mean, there's, there's some like, you know, fiduciary shenanigans where it's like, because the money gets, you know, gets to sit in the treasury, but the postal service doesn't take tax money. And so it's, it's off book, you know, um, politicians get to spend it on, you know, aircraft carriers without having to, to raise taxes on the wealthy, you know, using the postal service as a cash cow. And that's part of the game. And they, you know, so it's like they have the money, they don't want to give it back. So, you know, we need to make them. Definitely. So I think we have one caller uh, still on the line. I want to welcome the caller to Working Class Heroes Radio. Caller, what's your name and where you're calling from? Hi, I'm Roberta from the Bronx. Um, I love the little history of the post office. And there are so many complaints about mail being lost or whatever. But I think it was a very good analogy that he had made at one point about the letter carriers walking the beat. 
and I'm thinking of turning that into a post. That's where what cops should be doing, walking the beat. And I know of Bernie's proposal to get, bring back community banking and postal banking. I didn't know sure. about the program that had existed up until the 60s or whatever. Could he explain it? Because when you go into some offices, they're very crowded. So how would that be done? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, caller. Frank. Yeah, I mean, like, like part of it is is to expand services, to have like uh, you know have window hours expand. I mean, they they have made so many cuts and they've closed so many offices and they've sold so much real estate, um, prime real estate, because this is old property in the center of cities with WPA murals and like the 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 landmark um, Bronx General Post Office that got turned into some kind of um, you know condominium for you know for 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 the for the gentry uh, like you know that they want in the South Bronx now. Um, so, I mean, like, yeah, that's right. It's like we like they're trying to make the post office a miserable experience, um, you know, through many ways. Um, and I would say like one of them, like before we go, just to make sure that I wanted to put out there, if people go to APWU.org uh, petition, um, there's a petition on there to um, President Biden and uh, the Senate uh, majority and minority leaders about the vacancy is on the Board of Governors and to put in Board of Governors to counteract um, the neoliberals, the people who want to fight for a people's post office um, that, you know, will will do things like expand the number of, of services and clerks and, and hours for people. Frank, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. I feel like we learned a lot and, and I hope uh, our listeners learned a lot as well that history um, the background, the, the, the possibilities that the post office can offer uh, low income and working class New Yorkers. I think it's I think it's fantastic. So um, if you can um, maybe just repeat the petition, the address the, to the petition uh, so that people can get it one more time. I think I think it'd be good. Oh, certainly. It's APWU.org forward slash petition. And that's the American Postal Workers Union website. Great. Thank you, Frank. There's always work at the Postal Office. As they say, there's a great book about the history of uh, the postal workers and their struggle. It's called There's Always Work at the Postal Office by uh, Philip Rubio. People should check that out. Uh, Thanks again, Frank. Thanks to everyone. I want to thank Khadija and Mel for hosting tonight's show, as well as Bree, Lupita, Danny, and Leah for behind-the-scenes work. And, of course, our super producer, Giovanni Anglin, people should definitely check out Black Seinfeld. Um, that's, uh, that's a show that Gio works on. So next week, we'll be taking a look at the tech worker movement and their efforts to organize in one of the fastest growing job sectors here in the U.S. So make sure to tune in on Saturday, January 30th at 6 p.m. Until then, New York, stay safe, stay healthy, and as always, in solidarity. Walking down an Alabama road Remembering what the Bible told Walking with a letter in his hand Dreaming of another southern land Walking down an Alabama road And he went by the name of William Moore Now what are you doing, William Moore? Why the letter in your hand There's only one southern land 
And he went by the name of William Moore What price the glory of one man What price the glory of one man What price the hopes What price the dreams And what price the glory of 